0: Have you ever wanted a safe space where you can just exist? Where, for a moment in time, you can be you, with all the intricacies and parts of you that people don't always understand? Welcome to In the Deep, stories that shape us. I'm your host, Zach Stafford, and each episode, we create a space to be you, all of you, in all your messy and complicated glory. Every story shares what it means to be a Black and Latinx man living with different hardships, whether it's the struggle of identity, discrimination, or health and how they've managed to push forward despite the circumstance. We hope to get closer, even if just a little, to a road of healing and understanding. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today's guest is really special because he's also a storyteller. As a producer for Good Morning America, Tony Morrison gets to share a lot of stories. And over the years, so many people have trusted him with their own. However, it wasn't until late last year that Tony finally trusted the public he served with his own truth, a truth that almost no one in his life even knew. But before we get there, let's start at the beginning to better understand this big moment in his life. As a Filipino American man and member of the LGBTQ community, Tony has long found himself at a crossroads with his identity, often finding comfort in silence or within the comforts of a makeshift closet. And his story begins outside the U.S., where life took a great deal from him at a young age. I was born in the Philippines,
1: actually, in Cebu. Anyone's heard of it out there? And my birth father actually passed away when I was very young. I was maybe one or two years old. So you could say right right out the gate in life, in my life, I was kind of hit with... Trauma of the worst kind, of loss, you know? And my mom ended up remarrying to an American. And we moved to the States. I was probably like five years old to good old Orlando, Florida. I was naturalized, became an American citizen in seventh grade. And, you know, looking back, growing up as an LGBT person, an LGBT kid, I didn't know what that meant. I really didn't know what gay was. You know, I grew up in a very evangelical household. So there was that element for me of being signaled that gay was not okay, but to be quite honest, I always thought that liking guys was just a phase and I would grow out of it. That's how I operated my entire childhood and adolescent life. Later on, my mom and now stepdad got a divorce. I was probably in middle school. And then later on in my college years, my stepdad actually passed away from heart disease and stroke. And in full disclosure, it's something I'm still working through. And in collaboration with my therapist, I think that this is an area where I feel that loss and trauma I've just accepted at an early stage in life. And I use the word accepted in a very broad way, not in a sense that it's okay, but to the extent that I feel that I have accepted what I identify now as trauma, hardship, challenge as just things to overcome. It's how do we get to the other side? Some may call it survival. Some may call it triumph and an overcoming. But I think that there's something there, at least for me, in terms of at a very young age, I learned that life is not so nice. I didn't know what to call it. But we always have a pathway to get through it. And I think that At the end of the day, we've been given tools to get through whatever we've been handed. And for me, it's always been about taking a moment of pause in whatever situation arises and looking at what and who's around me that I've been tooled with to get to the other side.
0: Growing up with two major losses at a young age really shaped Tony's view of the world. But he felt these hard knocks were normal. And as a kid growing up in Orlando, he didn't see himself as an outcast. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Well, I think
1: I'm able to articulate it a little bit more clearly to myself now and to call things by their name and what it was. I mean, losing a father, going through a divorce as a kid, losing another parent later on in life, for me... I really thought that's just how life was. I was a happy-go-lucky kid. I was after school and helping the front office. I was the nerd, the geek. I was the campus activities guy, did all the clubs. I was marching band president and honor society president at the same time. You know, I'd never felt othered or out of place, really. But looking back, it really was a wonder that I made it through all that and was able to still... Be who I was in that moment. I thought that just being different was part of life. In the same way that I've, I dealt with, again like loss and divorce, and quite frankly, being the only brown kid in the room in public school. I never felt that that was really a challenge. It was to me presented as, oh well, this is just how life is. How are we going to get through it? How are we executing a plan to overcome and get to the next? And I think that. Because I didn't dwell on the challenge in that, I was able to focus on cultivating relationships with so many people and just being a light in the room without knowing I was a light in the room and just being me. So there's always been an element of let's do this and just showing up for yourself without knowing what that even was.
0: You sort of phrase that I've said before to be the only brown boy in the room. You know, I grew up in a part of Tennessee where I was the only Black person in the room, and and you were similar. But for me, I just got to say, like,
1: I didn't realize it till much later in life to look back. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think I just, I recognized that, and, and I knew that, but I didn't know how to make anything of it at the time. But looking back now, even as we're talking about it, there's many instances where I'm like, oh, I was the representation, and I didn't even know how to represent myself, let alone a community of people at the time.
0: Yeah. When was the first time you felt the burden of representation back then?
1: Oh, my gosh. I really feel like it was into my college years. Like early freshman in college, I was very adamant about leaving home at 18 and doing my own thing and going out of my way not to talk to my parents my first semester of college because it was all about me. You know, and really kind of discovering myself and other people. And I really, that first semester was an eye-opening experience of like, wow, there's so much in the world out there.
0: Tony wore his LGBTQ plus identity like a badge of honor, especially during his college years. And like some of us, he had to learn to toggle between multiple identities as a gay man, as a brown man, as an American. For a young person, especially in those exploratory years, learning who we are comes in phases. But for Tony, that meant shutting down parts of his identity while he explored others.
1: I think I was really resistant to the idea of meeting others like me at first. And because I maybe I was so fine with life and at that part of my life being a status quo and just focusing on career and maybe relationships. Maybe at the time it was... The, the wrong relationships <laughs> <laughs> to like cultivate. But I remember I did meet a group of individuals. I'm half Filipino, half Asian Indian. And a group of brown students were trying to recruit me to be in, you know, Filipino student unit of some sort. And I just remember saying, like, I don't need any Filipino friends. I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need to be part of a body of brown or black individuals. I don't know. It's so interesting to think about it back then, but I really was so resistant to becoming part of a group like myself, you know, and I've had many conversations about identity, especially in the past couple of years. I really had always fronted when I was out my LGBT identity, but never really invested in my AAPI identity, And it's really only been recently where I am really seeking out more of my kind, my culture. You're not truly in your fullness unless you're accepting all the versions of yourself and all your identities. And I think that that's a transformative place to be in, but I think it's also a very ongoing
0: process. Yeah, It's ever-changing, you know? Yeah. What's it like to move through the world from your opinion, to not be able to see yourself and then to eventually become what you maybe needed to see me as a kid. Does it feel lonely when you look backwards? It does, but I think that you can't
1: come to that realization until you do see yourself and see yourself in someone else. You don't realize what you've been missing. You don't realize how blind you were, even objectively. I think that... You have to let yourself meet that moment for you to have that realization. Like, I remember for years you're talking about visibility, representation, all these inclusivity buzzwords. But when I really saw someone like myself and can envision myself doing XYZ on television or film or whatever media, it really hits you in a way that you can't describe. And then you have a feeling of, oh, this. Mm-hmm. This is visibility. This is representation. And then you have an understanding for what that is for yourself. And hopefully are able to be in a position to pass the torch to the next.
0: After college, Tony decides to make a big move to New York City. He slowly starts to find his tribe, his chosen family. Like any family, his began to form these sorts of traditions together. And going to get HIV tested as a group became one of them. But this feels like a lot for him. Even though it is 2014 and not the height of the AIDS epidemic, HIV still feels like a scary diagnosis, a death sentence even to Tony. So he opts to get tested a little differently.
1: Suitcase in a Dream was my moving to New York story. Moved here with no plan, just loved New York. And I had come out officially, publicly... Was a Facebook post just a few months after moving to New York. And I had actually found a really great, great group of friends, young, out, LGBT, people in their 20s, all walks of life, all different backgrounds, and they were really the foundation for what we call now a chosen family in this enormously chaotic environment that is New York City. So we were all hanging out a couple months after I moved to New York, we saw out in, I believe it was West Village area. Outside one of the bars, there were, there were one of these HIV testing trucks. And one of my friends were like, let's all go get tested together. It'll be fun. It's like a cool group activity. And I'm like, I don't know. That's like fun. Yeah, and- I wouldn't say that, but. <laughs> <laughs> what struck me was the excitement about doing it as a group activity because it was such a personal thing. Especially that particular test, you know. And I'm here, I am, and I'm a new out gay in New York. And again, all I've been signaled was growing up, gay is bad. This is not good, your lifestyle. And the worst possible thing that can happen to you is you'll get HIV and you'll die. Period. That's the storyline. And so having that in the back of your mind, it's like, well, I don't know. This is not like a really fun group activity that I want to be involved in. So we kind of brushed it off, went on drinks, whatever. But I was just filled with curiosity the rest of that week. So at that time in New York City, there was a huge campaign for just testing. Test here, test there. There's at-home tests. And I got an at-home test and I tested when I got home. And... Testing positive for HIV is as terrifying and awful as it sounds. Full stop, period. This was in 2014. No one really told you what to do when you got a positive result. And that's been part of my conversation too now is, what if I had a holistic testing experience with information about the if, the resources, where I didn't have to find different programs or four different types of insurances to pay for my medication or who to go to and all this just stuff that I had to find all on my own. And it was a really difficult time. One of those guys in that initial group that I mentioned was actually one of the first people that I told about about my diagnosis. And it was three days after carrying this knowledge alone by myself Because I didn't know how to share it or to tell people. I really thought it was the end. I really, really did think it was the end. And I took a few days off work just to figure things out, to get these confirmatory tests, you know, these clinics, and to find these resources. But, um, yeah, it was a really difficult time.
0: Yeah, it sounds, I mean, it is. It is. One of the first things people often tell me is they're like, I don't know who to tell. And it sounds like you went through that whole process too. So in that moment, how did you decide who to reach out to in one of the darkest moments of your life?
1: I think it was just really thinking through who would still love me. I knew there might be an element of disapproval or a worst-case scenario reaction, even from your closest friends, because, again, among our whole group of friends, straight or gay, no one was really right in on this stuff, you know, or what to do, or what, what the medical advancements of the time were, what your options were. So for me, it was really calling through the friends who I thought who might be able to help me not just through this moment, but to help fix me, I think.
0: And what did fixing you look like then?
1: I mean, I think it was the ultimate fantasy of this is a false positive. There's a way to undo this. Um, Maybe someone knew someone that could help me find the right medication, how to keep it under wraps, finding individuals that would help me honor that level of confidentiality and privacy. And there's a lot to go through as a 20-something new New Yorker.
0: Yeah. Did you feel like New York was over for you in this moment? Or how did life look different in that moment for you looking forward?
1: I mean, I definitely thought I had an expiration date for sure. Wow. And in all of my visits to, you know, get blood work done and the endless passing of me to different clinics and offices... I was really just waiting for that moment of you're done for, you know, that confirmed piece of sound or news that everything I've harbored in my mind was true, but it really was a doctor who was so kind. And I literally did ask her like, am I dying? How many days do I have left? Like straight up just asked her because she came in with my labs and she kind of smirked at me. And I was like, this is so rude because I'm not trying to be dramatic. But she was the one that explained to me what we know now as you equals you, undetectable equals untransmittable. And she just told me how life would be just fine. And that was my first interaction of, there isn't an end? I don't have an end date? This is wild. It was so groundbreaking for me to understand that. Yeah. To the extent that I really didn't want to believe her.
0: Yeah. You're a smart person. So uh, you can intellectualize things, but you also feel things. And these intellectualizing and feeling are very different. So intellectually, you hear from this doctor, you're going to be okay. You're going to live. When did you begin to feel that in your body? I think it took
1: actually seeing the science, seeing the test results. And being in close contact with her. Because again, like she told me this news of, it's not the end of the world, we get you on medication, like you'll be fine. Good as new. It was so simple. And I was like, there's no way. That's not, what I've, that's not what I've heard. That's not what I think I know. It was an absolute rejection of that idea that things would be okay. But as we dug into my experience and got these test results and got everything under control, it became the most managed thing in my life. And it continues to be the most managed thing in my life. I think that was the foundation of a lot of hurt. I felt like I went out of my way to make sure that I was in good health and to ensure that others around me were also in good health. And to know that and to have that experience of being okay again... It was really a letdown to have these negative experiences in life, you know, and dating and going out and off color jokes at brunch. And I was like, do
0: you not know anybody who's living through this? Tony only trusted a very select few with his diagnosis. And for a while, he says he felt the need to go back into the closet to heal, to get healthier, to take care of himself. But Tony is no stranger to telling stories. And as a producer, it's his livelihood. After living through the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown and sharing stories of people like himself, he made a bold decision to write an essay for Good Morning America, where he courageously trusted the public with the biggest story he'd ever shared, his own.
1: I was hit with this diagnosis. At that time, it just wasn't okay and acceptable. And the idea was... You're going to give it to other people. You're going to die. Everyone's going to die. It's not a good situation to be. It's the nightmare of having an LGBT son or daughter. You know, it's a culmination of bad. It's a punishment. It's a consequence for the life that you're living. And that's what was drilled in my head. And I felt like it's something that I couldn't live with for a long time because it's not, it wasn't something that society could live with. And I think that's what I'm on a mission now is everybody has got something and this is something that society has to live with, I feel, because we have been living with this and people who are going through this for so long. It's the base element of LGBT community. We, we are here. We've always been here. This group of individuals has been here for a long time, thanks to Emerging Science you know, we've come a long ways. And I think that we owe a lot to those people before us
0: as well. We surely do. We surely do. I take your discussions on the perception people have around HIV and the stories they say that aren't right. I take you saying that with a lot more weight because you work in media and your job literally is looking at stories all day long, every day. And I want to ask about that. You were in the closet, we'll say, as an HIV positive person, not note people don't need to come out publicly when you test positive HIV. That's not like a requirement. Totally, totally. But you were not talking about it in, in the ways in which you talk about it now, but you're seeing stories every day of queer people, of HIV-positive people. What was that like to be sitting in a newsroom, in a control room, seeing these stories and seeing yourself in them, but not knowing, do I say something? Do I talk about it? It's been
1: a very unique evolution. And I've been taking on a lot more... LGBT programming and storytelling and leading a lot of that here at the network for ABC and Good Morning America. And like you said, I I lift up stories for underrepresented communities, including people living with HIV, but never having provided my own context or my own connection to my own experience while I'm telling other people's stories. And that had weighed on me for a number of years. And it took COVID and the lockdown and an environment of loss to really forced me to pause and and think about what I had been doing, positioning my story in a way that was still closeted. And the conversation is changing by just having these conversations. It's actually so wild to me. I really came to a place where I was releasing this essay as a personal story and doing it in a very public way because I got to a place where I was realizing how sad and not in my fullness I was bringing myself to meetings or to friends around me. And again, that environment of loss, I really began to think how unfair it was for me to be so sad, but be perfectly fine and have a perfectly great life to live. And I felt like, wow, that's such a waste. And I really wanted other people to kind of get on board You know, this was the experience, and it's an experience like so many others. And I think that the feeling of being an other and being othered, that's the trope that I feel like everybody has been latching on. It's been really shocking to me how many people have reached out and said how how much my story has meant to them and what parts of my story affects them. That's been the really unexpected part. And today... I'm the happiest ever. I have I never <laughs> knew I could be so happy and fulfilled by living in my fullness in this way. And I didn't realize also how many other parts of my life were being affected by keeping this part hidden away to where once I gave myself permission to live in my fullness, everything just turned.
0: What advice would you give to someone listening that... They don't want to come out publicly. They want to remain private. How do they do that? How do they stay healthy and happy, in your opinion?
1: For sure. This is not a, you have to come out with anything (laughs) conversation. You're not Harvey
0: Milk. Come out, everybody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sure, there is power in that. But there is also power in being honest with yourself and how you want to live your life. And if you do want to come to a place where you want to be public about parts of your life, great. Go for it. But I feel like you have to let that moment meet you, is my take on that. Let the opportunity come to you versus you forcing that opportunity. And earlier we are talking about looking at the tools around you for how to get through something. I didn't have the tools I have today, mentally, literally, metaphorically, professionally, as a journalist, and covering the stories I have over the past few years. It took me eight years to get to this point, but I didn't have the tools five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. So this opportunity, this moment met me, and then in the end, it was up to me to meet that moment. And I would tell people living with HIV today, my goal is I want people living with HIV to be seen. I want people living with HIV to know they are seen in our world. I see you, we see you, and you belong here. Because for so long, I felt that I didn't belong here because I let a diagnosis define me. That was the unfair part, that I didn't give myself that permission to live and love.
0: Yeah, that's so beautiful. And it makes, I have to ask, do you regret going down the path that you've been on? This like eight years of you know quiet, the regret, the fears, all that. Do you regret it all? Or would you do it exactly the same way? <sighs> I've asked myself that. And I'm not prepared to
1: say yes or no, but only that I had to go through what I did to be able to articulate the message for myself and for others that I'm able to today. What I hate, and I'll use the word hate, what I hate is how I made myself feel over the course of those eight years. There's a lot of learning, but I hate that I didn't have conversations like this to look to, or other people who raised their hands and said, I'm living with HIV, here's my experience, it's gonna be okay. So that's part of what I'm doing now, and really exposing this part of my life is, I really hope I can be a light to others who are struggling, and to say that your story matters, our story matters,
0: and that it's gonna be okay. Yes, it will be okay. Talking to you, I feel relief. I don't know why. I feel like <laughs> I'm very like, oh my god! Because everything you've told me, you've you've overcome multiple father figures, a father and another father figure's dying. You you have immigrated. You have moved to New York. You've overcome and overcome, and you are so happy. <laughs> you are so, and, you, <laughs> and you're so hopeful. And then this pandemic, no one's hopeful anymore. So Tony, final question: with all this hope and freedom and truth. What comes next for you? What are, what are you looking forward to? Because right now, it feels like you're in uh, nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're looking for a husband.
1: Just put it out there. Put that up there. <laughs> Manifest. <laughs> we're going to let that opportunity come to me again. Yes. Use that yes. strategy. Oh my gosh. But you know what, Zach? It's, uh, I feel like I've always been this positive, just driven individual, but I think in the time we're in now and my experience and all that I stand for now, I think that I've seen the alternative. And I feel like I've really had that near-death experience, or at least in my mind, you know? So it has to be what's next in the most positive way. It has to be after the best for yourself and others and really leaning into your potential. And I'm excited. I don't know what tomorrow may bring. But that actually, that uncertainty really excites me in a way that in the past, I was really afraid of that uncertainty.
0: Yeah. And something else before I let you go, (laughs) and also I'm going to be thinking of men for you now, um, is uh, I feel like you have proven this thing someone said to me this week is that like, to be kind, you have to be kind to yourself because your story really embodies that. Because I would argue you're probably the most kind ever now that you've been so kind in public to yourself.
1: I'll tell you, like sharing my story, going through this experience, especially in a public way. But for everyone listening, you don't have to do in a public way. I think just sharing your story just makes you more compassionate. And you just see what it is you're missing when you're not living to your full potential. And when you are, you see that in others as well. So it just, yeah, it's right on. And I think that that's really a product of not taking life too seriously and just letting yourself live.
0: As a society, we've all been wired to believe that moving backwards isn't something good. But what if going backwards isn't seen in a negative way, but instead a moment that we take to process the present, to heal, to accept our realities, to fully enjoy what is to come? Tony teaches us that even in the moments where we feel the most hopeless— It is the trust that we have for our closest family, our friends, and for ourselves that helps us continue pushing forward and taking the time to listen to our needs following our own timeline is perhaps the bravest thing we can do for our well-being. This has been In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Find this episode and others on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to share, rate, and review if you enjoyed this conversation. This show is produced by Yvonne Sheehan and mastered by James Foster. Our show researcher is Jordan Raggio and our writer is Yvette Lopez. A shout out to our guest, Tony Morrison. I'm your host, Zach Stafford.